is my distinct pleasure to uh, reintroduce today Dr. Smith's Warfield Lectures. By the mercies of God, considering justification is today's title. Reformed theology, maybe some of you have noticed so far, Reformed theology has no place in today's world. To many, the teachings of this tradition even seem to be contrary to what is needed in our times, to its ethical, political, societal, economic, and environmental challenges. And one option for a Reformed theologian today is to affirm tradition and reject the modern world and its problems. And we see this happening in a many a theology around us. And the second option for a reformed theologian is to affirm contemporary challenges and constructively engage them and to give up tradition. And we see this happening in many a theology around us. Dirkie Smith showed us yesterday that there is a third way. Bringing us into the dilemma he lived through in the years of apartheid, he provided us with a theological hermeneutic true to the Pauline insight that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Dirkie Smith thus proposed a theological hermeneutic of reading tradition against tradition, holding on to tradition against tradition, and even using tradition in order to defy tradition. You could, I think, call this a project of liberating doctrine. And in both senses, it liberates doctrines from its crustifications, and it affirms doctrine as a liberating rather than an oppressive force. His case in point yesterday was rethinking the doctrine of election in the context of apartheid. Turkey was not shy to call the doctrine of election an abomination, I heard you, um, <laughs> where it is being taught according to the letter only. And he was inspiring in pointing out how this doctrine, understood true to the context it evolved from, provides hope for even the most wretched instead. Yesterday, many of us stayed behind discussing amongst ourselves, but not daring to engage Dirkie Smith in discussion. So can this be done? Is he making Calvin a universalist? Don't we need to distinguish the wretchedness of the perpetrators from the wretchedness of the oppressed when we think of the promise and the hope? These were just a few questions I overheard yesterday. And I think some of these may reappear as we engage the doctrine of justification today. So today, after the lecture, we will have a short break. For those of you who need to run, you can take that time to leave without any shame. But we will then <laughs> continue into a discussion for those of you who are interested. This is after time, so you don't get any extra credit for it. It's not a requirement. Um, but um, everyone who would like to discuss the lecture with Dirty Smith, he is, has agreed to stay around for that. So by the mercies of God, we are excited, Durki, to find out what you will tell us about your considerations of justification and its place in today's world. Uh, can I thank uh, President Barnes and uh, Professor Bruce McCormack in their absence again for the uh, invitation to give this lectures. It is a privilege. Uh, for me, uh, my thanks to Dr. Hannah Reichel for the introduction. The introduction has already been better than the lecture will be. <laughs> um, it is an honor to uh, work as your colleague, uh, Anna, and I look forward to many occasions where I will be able to introduce you to audiences. And can I say a word of special thanks to um, the students, the students uh, in my courses as well. Uh, you know that uh, you give me uh, lots of joy and, and, and pleasure. I appreciate that. And thanks for being here. And thanks to everyone else who, in spite of the weather and in spite of the time of day, uh, turned up for this occasion. I, I appreciate that. Last year on July 5th, during an ecumenical service in Wittenberg commemorating the Reformation, the World Communion of Reformed Churches associated themselves with the Joint Declaration of Justification. The Joint Declaration is the remarkable breakthrough document agreed on by the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran World Federation in 1999. 
already in 2006, the World Methodist Council also affirmed the joint declaration. Uh, in Wittenberg, in their document of association, the World Communion of Reformed Churches agreed that the doctrine of justification has a central place among the doctrines of Christian faith and that it forms an indispensable criterion for teaching and practice. In particular, they affirmed the claim that justification is grounded solely in God's electing grace. In Christ, before the foundation of the world, so that we have nothing that we have not received, and therefore humility and gratitude are evoked within us. In addition, th these affirmations were of what were already in the original document, but in addition, as Reformed Communion, they wished to underscore the integral relation between justification and justice. They do this not because justice is an ethical outworking of justification, they explained, but for theological reasons. For them, justice belongs to justification for theological reasons. For them, God's covenant of grace involves a setting right that is world-embracing including political, economic, and ecological realities. In Wittenberg, in the service, the original signing partners of the Joint Declaration enthusiastically welcomed this association and wholeheartedly endorsed this particular emphasis of the reform tradition, namely that justification rooted in election involves world-embracing justice for theological reasons because of God. However, the process leading up to this moving moment of association during the worship last year has not always been so warm and welcoming. What happened in Wittenberg was in fact the final stage of a long and difficult, sometimes painful process of ecumenical disagreement and dialogue. In 2001, during an initial meeting in Columbus, Ohio, the reformed representatives did not see their way open to sign the joint declaration to the deep disappointment of the original signatories, the reformed delegation declined to join the process. They gave several reasons, all typically reformed, why they felt reluctant at the time to commit themselves. But of key importance was that they did not feel comfortable to speak about justification today in our world without also speaking about justice. For them, the ways in which we confess our faith and in which we speak about God matter. Our words affect how others hear us and experience our witness to the gospel and our message of assurance and hope. The South African reformed theologian Russell Botman a respected public intellectual, the founder of the Bayes Nodea Center for Public Theology at Stellenbosch University, president of the South African Council of Churches, and the first black rector and vice chancellor of Stellenbosch University, was one of the members of the reformed delegation in his role as the co-chair of the reformed Roman Catholic dialogue. And he was one of those who argued against signing the joint declaration at the time. Botman appealed to the Protestant tradition. He appealed to Lutheran figures like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the South African Lutheran Bishop Manas Butelezi, 
He appealed to earlier decisions of the Lutheran World Federation regarding apartheid in Dar es Salaam. He appealed to reformed theologians like Calvin, Barth, and to South African John de Grouchy. But he very specifically also appealed to recent experiences in the South. In his short paper called Should Reformed Join In, he deeply appreciated the remarkable ecumenical progress achieved in this joint declaration. From a reformed perspective, and in particular from the perspective of the South, however, he questioned the necessity and the desirability of such a step at that moment for the reformed community. It is a serious question from the perspective of the growing number of reformed Christians in the South, he explained, whether this was indeed the most urgent issue for our common faith in our shared world today. It was a serious, it is a serious question whether this approach, namely seeking doctrinal agreement on controversies and on mutual rejections from the 16th century that are no longer experienced by a majority of believers in our world as existential and church dividing issues, whether such an approach is indeed the best way to address the truly important challenges of publicly confessing the one gospel together today. Was this indeed the best way to confess together God's justification in our contemporary world? Or was it perhaps desirable and necessary to reconsider justification anew and together? Botman claimed that there is indeed a more urgent challenge, namely to witness to the integral link between justification and justice. And to say that and how they belong together in the one gospel of God's salvation. From the reformed perspective, he argued, it was simply not possible to leave justice issues aside because they may be divisive in order first to solve issues of unity by way of mutual agreements. Those who seek the way to unity by postponing the issue of justice misunderstood the importance of this question for the nature of the church itself. For the reformed faith, Justice is not merely an ethical consequence of the gospel of justification, he argued. Rather, justifi both justification and justice are integral to God's own actions of saving justice, God's liberating justice. Affirming justice as integral to justification was necessary for theological reasons, he claimed. And this was what experiences during the 20th century taught us. And then he wrote, it is a scandal to people who are, daily, who are dying daily of poverty, violence, and oppression when we postpone discussion on the relationship between justification and justice treating the latter as merely a matter of ethical application. To affirm a doctrinal statement that relinquishes the doctrinal connection between justice and justification would be a betrayal of everything that Christianity has learned about justification after Auschwitz and apartheid. For these reasons, he was at the time not yet convinced that the reformed should join and the other reformed representatives agreed so that almost two decades of further dialogue followed before Wittenberg last year became possible.
question whether justification and justice belong together has recently been at the heart of many scholarly discussions. In Pauline scholarship, it has, for example, for several decades already been part of the debates about the so-called new perspectives on Paul. Broadly speaking, Luther has been blamed for misreading Paul when he made his life-changing discovery of the doctrine of justification in Romans 1, 16 and 17 in the tower of his house in Wittenberg. And mainstream Reformation theology since then has been blamed for reading Paul through the eyes and the 16th century existential issues of Luther and the early reformers and therefore also misunderstanding Paul. It is often argued that Reformation theology misunderstands the overall structure and argument of Romans. Reformation theology does not always see the way in which Romans 1, 16 and 17 is continued and further developed in the rest of Romans. Reformation theology does not fully appreciate the integral link between God's justification of Jew and Greek in chapter 1 with the life-giving work of the Spirit in chapters 5 to 8, with the free grace of election in chapters 9 to 11, and with the renewal, the renewal through Christ God's mercies in chapters 12 to 16. In fact, chapters 9 to 11 on God's election may indeed from, form the heart of the letter, according to many. Far from being an almost alien argument within the overall structure, which could be ignored without much loss, as has sometimes been argued, God's free grace of election in chapters 9 to 11 may in fact offer the key to the interpretation of Romans. The mysterious mercies of God's election, so movingly praised at the end of chapter 11, may actually form the bridge between God's gracious acceptance of you and Greek in 1, 16 and 17 and the appeal to graciously accept one another in 15, 7 to the glory of God. There are lots of chairs everywhere if you, if you uh, are looking for a seat. In his recent study, Reading Paul with the Reformers, Reconciling Old and New Perspectives. The New Testament scholar Stephen Chester describes, described the state of these recent debates in Pauline scholarship as thoroughly confused and confusing. Students of Paul are today faced with such a bewildering variety of options that it has become difficult to frame the alternatives, let alone to decide between them, he says. Still, his own argument is that there may be indeed a way towards reconciliation between these perspectives, to retain the gifts of Reformation exegesis while also taking insights from the so-called new perspective on Paul seriously. And his argument therefore concludes in this spirit, Paul's proclamation of God's election shows how God's justifying activity displays complete disregard for all human notions of worth. No form of human worthiness, whether ethical or ethnic, can be a contributory cause of justification. However, far from thereby rendering human actions and communal practices insignificant, such radical divine grace calls for embodiment in forms of community that witness to this gracious election and this undeserved justification, Chester argues. The church is transformed to become a visible witness to the radical divine grace of election and justification. That in this structure, in this arc, 
from acceptance by God to acceptance of one another, from divine welcome to the church's welcome, from free grace to free grace in this ark, the logic of Romans is seen. God's welcome in the first chapters flows over into our welcome in the final chapters. By the mercies of God, this is how election matters. When Paul appeals to the mercies of God in chapter 12, the first two verses, these words form the link between God's welcome in chapters 1 to 11 and the welcome of the church in chapters 12 to 16. This is why Paul's doxology on the mysterious ways of God's free grace of election in 11.33-39 to 39 flows over into the appeal not to reply evil with evil, 12.17, but to overcome evil with good, 12.21, to accept and welcome one another like God, 13.1 and 4, to accept and welcome one another like Christ, 15.7 to the glory of this welcoming and accepting gracious God, 15.8. In her recent study, when in Romans, an invitation to linger with the gospel according to Paul, based on nearly two decades of teaching Romans here at Princeton Theological Seminary, Beverly Gaventa, provides a discussion of Romans in this spirit that could perhaps serve as helpful guide through these confused and confusing debates. Salvation in Romans involves not just individuals, old reading, or even groups of people, new perspectives, whether the church or ethnic or other groups, she says, and with that claim, she already navigates her way through these confused and confusing debates. But salvation in Romans involves the liberation of the whole of the created world from the grasp of powers. At stake in Romans is God's action in Jesus Christ to redeem all of creation, she explains. Reading Romans one should see this universal horizon of God. Paul locates God's faithfulness and God's radical welcome to the Gentiles, some of the motifs underlined by the new perspectives on Paul. Paul locates this within an even larger context, she argues, which involves the whole created order. And this is for her the overriding purpose of Romans. Paul proclaims the vastness of the gospel because he fears that the Romans have not heard the gospel in its fullness. 1, 16 and 17 may indeed be very important, almost the thesis of the whole letter, like many interpreters since Paul, since Luther have claimed, she says. But we still need the rest of the letter to appreciate what Paul here means by justification. She prefers the translation rectification to signal that these words indeed refer to God's active, powerful intervention and not only to a quality of God. This was, of course, Luther's discovery. Paul is speaking about what God is doing, uh, which suddenly opened the gates of paradise for him. And according to Gaventa, Luther was correct. But for Paul, this rectification was even more than what Luther saw. Namely, nothing less than God's active, powerful intervention to redeem the whole of the cosmos, she claims. <coughs> we will therefore only find a clue about what Paul is getting at in 116 and 17, once we have read the rest of Romans as well. 
This is, however, a difficult task, she says, full of surprises. And some of those surprises may even be offensive to our ears, she warns. Romans is far from innocuous. Romans ushers us into a gospel way more vast than we may imagine. Romans may well take us places where we would prefer not to go, she cautions. Salvation is indeed central to Romans, but what Paul means by salvation may be larger, far more complex, more cosmic, more comprehensive, and also more challenging than what we usually imagine, she warns. She points out how Paul uses we and how he describes the condition of this we. We are so accustomed to his words, she says, but they were probably deeply offensive to his first readers, since this is strong stuff, she says, since his we turn out to be fairly wretched. Christ died for us while we were weak on behalf of the ungodly, while we were sinners, while we were enemies, weak, ungodly, sinners, enemies. These were not terms that his hearers would ever have applied to themselves, she observes. In his later chapters, he spins this narrative of human plight and salvation into an even larger, more complex cosmic terms. It now morphs into a story of conflict and enslavement and deliverance. Now Paul contends that all creation longs for redemption. His understanding of salvation is cosmic and God's final triumph, triumph is the redemption of the whole of creation. She points out that Paul is remarkably silent about human responses. Words like forgiveness and repentance have little or no place in his vocabulary. Because for him the problem is larger than an individual's action, as is shown by his language of slavery. Human beings can only be delivered from powers. This insight into Paul's language matters. This is exceedingly uncomfortable territory, she acknowledges, but it matters. What is so disruptive about Paul's understanding of salvation is its vastness. This is the uncomfortable challenge to many standing in the tradition of the Reformation. The vastness of what God has accomplished is far larger than what our use of the word salvation usually suggests. And that matters. That makes a difference to the way we see the world and the ways we talk about the world. What we need to hear, says Gaventa, is that God's action of election and justification and salvation encompasses the cosmos, the whole of creation. It involves confrontation with empires of all sorts. What the key chapters 9 to 11 address is therefore not a question about Israel, she continues, but a question about God. For Paul, Israel belongs to God, not God to Israel. Paul's entire discussion in Romans culminates at the end of chapter 11 with the doxology on God's grace and mercies, surpassing our knowledge, our control, our predicting, our repaying, our influencing or claiming God. Now the language that all will be saved extends to all of humanity. Yet it is as if we simply cannot quite comprehend 
what the simple word all might mean, she says. When in Romans, we find ourselves watching the horizon, says Gaventa, imagining a different world, one might say. Paul first thinks about God, about what God is up to, about what God has done in Jesus and how this transforms us. Romans invokes us to think through God's determination to save the world from itself. In Romans, Paul therefore demonstrates a remarkable concern for the outsider, she points out. And the reason is obvious and at the heart of his whole argument, from justification to welcome. Paul's, stands, Paul's stance reflects his understanding that God has acted in Jesus Christ for all human beings, she argues, both for those who are called to see that action in the present and those who live unaware of God's grace. Our continuous debates about God's all, our misunderstandings and failures and refusals might have been amusing if only they did not carry such disastrous consequences, if only they did not matter so much to so many, including the outsiders, the others, the they who are not us, including those who may be wretched in our eyes. How different would the history have been had this question been left to God, she asks. How different would our world have been had we reconsidered God's justification and reimagined God's election while lingering longer in Romans? How different our world would have been if God's welcome to all had been more visible in our welcome to all, to the glory of this God. It is remarkable how many voices from different backgrounds and traditions are indeed imagining a different world today, inspired by the logic of Romans. Perhaps the most remarkable among them among these voices is the way in which Paul and specifically Romans became popular in the circles of so-called political theologians. After all, political theologians do not regard themselves as theologians and their political theology is not intended to be theology. Or rather, some of them would claim in the words of the Jewish scholar Jakob Taubes following the controversial German jurist and political theorist Karl Schmidt, that everything is theology except that which theologians are doing. For them, contemporary political and economic and social thought and institutions and practices all rest on theological assumptions, which should be uncovered and discussed while theologians continue doing something else which Taubus calls chatter, theological chatter. Still, it remains remarkable how many of these so-called political theologians have turned to Romans to help them imagine differently. They argue that they have the right to search and plunder the archives of the Christian faith looking for treasures in the same way that the early Christian thinkers searched and plundered the, the riches, the archives of classical thought and culture in antiquity. I don't think theologically, Taubus once explained in his lectures on Romans called the political theology of Paul. I work with theological materials, but I think in terms of intellectual history and of actual history. I ask after the political potentials 
in the theological metaphors. And for this reason, since they are looking for political potential in the theological metaphors, these political theologians do not read Paul and Romans like historians and exegetes and theologians. As secular thinkers, some of them openly atheist, they do not ask the same questions. And do, they do not claim to share Paul's core belief. Yet they all seem to regard Paul and Romans as central for contemporary public life, whether political, economic, social, or cultural. For them, what Paul says in Romans really matters. Several of them have even written their own studies on Romans. Jacob Taubus's lectures on Romans were published posthumously as the political theology of Paul, but already in his much earlier doctoral dissertation, for decades only available in German, but now translated as Occidental Eschatology, Romans already played a key role. Giorgio Agamben published The Time That Remains, described in the subtitle as a commentary on the letter to the Romans, as well as a small monograph called The Church and the Kingdom, which is in the form of a letter, a passionate letter, an appeal, almost an accusation, addressed to the world church from the church of our Lord, sojourning in Rome. He argues in this letter like a first century apostle that the church has betrayed its own nature and calling and thereby also betrayed our world from the beginning. Alain Badur wrote his Saint Paul, the foundation of universalism. Reading Paul as a contemporary subject refusing to the order to submit to the order of the world as we know it and instead calling to struggle for an alternative world of love and hope and the transversal of differences. Slavos Zizek again and again returns to Paul in several of his works dealing for example with Paul's understanding of love as the fragile absolute which requires us to move beyond the organic groups into which we are born, beyond Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female. Many figures and many studies can be added from Simon Critchley's Faith of the Faithless to Terry Eagleton's Trouble with Strangers to a flood of volumes with collected essays and dictionaries on political theology. There seems to be a secular fascination with the contemporary political potential of Romans. These political theologians obviously differ among themselves about the political potential in these theological metaphors, and they obviously delve for different treasures. If debates in Pauline scholarship are confused and confusing, the same is true of these discussions among political theologians and their political readings of Romans. It is therefore impossible to reduce their viewpoints to one another since they discover widely different motifs in Romans. Still, somehow they all seem to share both experiences of contemporary crises that we are living in dangerous times as well as the conviction that there are resources in Paul's theology in Romans that may inform and inspire us to imagine a different world. However, it is not only in political theology that this theological link between justification and justice, the political potential of theological language has been reconsidered. Therefore, to conclude, three brief examples from three different confessional traditions that together serve as reminders of this new awareness in today's theological scholarship 
too. So also in the theological chatter, uh, people are interested in this link between justification and justice. Joshua Jip, an evangelical scholar from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, recently published his Saved by Faith and Hospitality. The title is from First Clement, where Abram, Lot, and Rahab are all described with these words, saved by faith and hospitality. Uh, this is a reference to the biblical accounts in First Clement, claiming that this is what the Bible said about them. They were saved by their faith and their hospitality. And this is his argument. Hospitality to strangers is at the heart of the Christian faith and cannot be separated from salvation. The God of the scriptures is the God of hospitality, he says. A God who extends hospitality and who requires God's people to embody hospitality. God's relationship to God's people is fundamentally one of hospitality to strangers. As God makes space for others by inviting humanity into relationship with God. This experience constitutes the church's identity and mission. Because of God's hospitality and friendship, the church can offer hospitality to one another and to those seemingly outside reach of our faith communities. He uses hospitality to describe the process of making space for strangers and friendship language to describe the relationships that result from such hospitality. This book is the product of his New Testament courses. He therefore deals in the book with hospitality in Luke Acts, in John, and in Paul, including Romans. He underlines the use of the word to welcome in Romans 14, verse 1 and 3, and again in 15, verse 7. Their welcoming of others is predicated upon God's welcoming them. Their hospitality is grounded Christologically, welcome one another like Christ, as Christ welcomed us. Uh, indeed, it is, anchor, it is grounded theologically in the welcome which they received in Christ from God. His passion for the theme of hospitality, however, was kindled in his experiences as a student. While working in a women's state prison in Atlanta, in relationships with refugees through world relief, in friendships with Muslim students, and in a local ministry to the urban homeless. As a result of these, his interest developed in how hospitality could overcome our tribalism, xenophobia, and greed, he says. According to him, the church in North America faces an incredible test. How can the church open its door to the outsider, he asks, listing litanies of concrete challenges and cultural crisis. Second, in their book called Wittenberg Meets the World, Reimagining the Reformation at the Margins, two Lutheran theologians Alberto Garcia and John Nunes similarly imagine a different church and a different world. Deeply rooted in their Lutheran tradition, but also in post-colonial critique and in their own concrete experiences, they reconsider justification as the doctrine on which the church stands or falls according to their tradition. As part of their post-colonial approach, and aware that colonization also affects people's imagination, they engage in what they call the work of reimagining and creative resistance. From the borderland experiences of the large Latino populations present and growing in the United States, they too take their point of departure in Romans 1.17. 
to argue that God's justification calls for the transformation of our private and public spaces by embodying God's justice in our time. They too are deeply concerned with contemporary cultural challenges to the church in the United States. The mainstream North American spirit has been inflamed with the spirit of us against them, they say. And this is hurting and hindering the witness of the church. The church should reimagine its witness to the gospel of God's grace in the light of this situation. The church's witness to God's grace today can no longer be just a private affair. It has to be directed to our societies, they argue, and challenge the ever-growing exclusion of the so-called other. Wittenberg, Luther, Romans 1, should meet the real world of the margins they believe. Last example, the Reformed philosopher uh, Nicholas Woltersdorf also reads Romans in a similar way. His interest in questions of justice developed only later in his career. In his autobiographical journey towards justice, personal encounters in the global south, he tells his own story. It began with an awakening experience during a visit to apartheid South Africa. He encountered people who were being wronged. He heard their cry for justice. He was deeply moved. And then he experienced how white reformed theologians did not share his feelings of shock and outrage. He saw before his eyes like never before how benevolence was used as an instrument of oppression. And since then he became fascinated with questions of justice and injustice. Justice for him has to do with rights and wrongs, with what people might rightfully claim and what we owe one another. His scholarly work on these themes became an attempt to speak up for the wronged of the world, he says. And in his many studies on justice since then, Romans played a key role. For him, God and justice are intimately intertwined, and Romans makes this clear. The New Testament is all about justice, he says, about real justice and real injustice. Although our theological traditions have de-justicized the New Testament so successfully that such a claim may come as a complete surprise to many. Not only the traditions of biblical interpretation and theology, but already the translation of the New Testament words into English serves to conceal from readers this central theme of justice in the New Testament, Volterstoff claims. Many today think that in the New Testament, love has replaced justice, but that is a fundamental misunderstanding, nothing less than a theological misunderstanding, in the words of Russell Bortman, a misunderstanding of the God whom we worship, in Wolterstoff's own words, and therefore a misunderstanding of being the church and of being human. In both these major studies on this theme, justice, rights and wrongs, and even more extensively in justice in love. He therefore sets out to show how central justice is for the New Testament and also for Romans. Beginning in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the theme of Romans is for him that God shows no partiality. I quote, God's Paul's overarching argument in Romans is that in offering justification to Jews and Gentiles alike, God is acting justly. God's love is just love. The book of Romans is about the justice of God's love, writes Wolterstoff. And in an essay on Christianity and human rights, he concludes that this is the theme of Romans, 
together with the notion of the image of God, which brought the Christian tradition to affirm natural and universal human rights. The theme that Paul emphasizes in Romans, namely that God offers justification and thereby fellowship to Jews and Gentiles alike, that is to everyone, because in God there is no partiality. This theme presses towards universalizing, he says. Anyone who believes that to every human being God extends the offer of fellowship is bound to reflect on the implications of this conviction for how each and every human being is to be treated, he claims. To be offered justification by God is to be honored. To be so honored is to have worth bestowed on one, worth that requires respect and not being wronged. Of course, Christians historically resisted this universalizing pressure, he says. Of course, they betrayed the consequences of their own tradition and the implications of their own faith, of course. These terrible failures of past and present should, however, not blind us to the integral connection between Christian thought and the idea of natural human rights, between justification and justice, between God's free grace of election and our acceptance and welcoming of even the most wretched in our eyes. From political theology to theological scholarship, with different confessional backgrounds, there seems to be widespread agreement with this growing consensus in recent biblical scholarship and in recent ecumenical dialogues. Many seem to agree that, in the words of Russell Botman, it would be a scandal to people who are daily dying of poverty, violence, and oppression to relinquish the doctrinal connection between justification and justice. It would be a scandal if we consider how scripture proclaims God's justification and justice. It would be a betrayal of what we have experienced since Auschwitz and apartheid about exclusion and oppression, about hospitality and welcome, about life on the margins, about being wronged and violated. We may indeed wonder with Beverly Gaventa how different our church and world could have been had we considered justification and election differently, lingering in Romans. We may indeed ask whether it is possible for us, by the mercies of God, to imagine a different world together. Thank you.